Hi, you're about to listen to episode 9 of the podcast, and we've got a lot of questions. Does the idea of copyright protect the interests of artists and creators? Does it add billions of dollars to the United States economy every year? Or does it stifle expression, innovation, and economic growth? In this episode, we discuss the public domain, Google spiders, the capital of the Galactic Empire, the Statute of Anne, Jiminy Cricket, and Motown. This is Robot F. Kennedy. So, uh, a copyright bill passed the House of Representatives last week on April 27th. Um, it's called the Goodlatte Bill, introduced by a Republican congressman from the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, excuse <laughs> me, Representative Bob Goodlatte. And this is known as the, um, the Goodlatte Bill. It passed last week. What it does is it basically takes the Copyright Office out from under the purview of the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. makes it its own department, and makes the head of the Copyright Office an appointment, a presidential appointment that needs senatorial approval. Do you know how they're chosen now? Right now, they're chosen by the li- Librarian of Congress. Oh, I, I see. believe. Um, and if not, then at least they are subordinate to the Librarian of Congress and they do not need senatorial approval. So the idea is to make this basically a political job so that they can lobby in one direction or the other the views regarding copyright law of the presidential administration. Yes. I think the bigger effect, though, is perhaps taking the Copyright Office out from under the Library of Congress. So the Library of Congress... Yeah, but to what? I mean, that's not a goal. That's just... I, th- I think it is a goal. I think that's exactly the point. But to what end? What does that do? What that does is it take. Well, what it does is it tremendously um, it disenfranchises the kind of power and standing of the Library of Congress. So basically right now, any copyrighted work that's submitted to the, to the Library of Congress, it's almost a, a hack, right? Or a piggyback where the Library of Congress... Its stated purpose is to collect the mm-hmm. cultural works and the accumulated knowledge of the American people mm-hmm. in one centralized place. And if you want to apply for a copyright, that goes straight to the Library of Congress. So they have on file everything that's ever been filed for a copyright. Mm-hmm. Now, if you remove those from one another, you do two things, right? You redirect some of those copyright applications outside of the purview of the Library of Congress. So fewer things are potentially being entered into the Library of Congress okay. as collected works. Second of all, you're making the political appointment and, more importantly, the senatorial approval right. of the head of the U.S. Copyright Office subject to the—I mean, I don't want to sound like a cynical leftist here, but you're making that yet another office that either lies, in under the example of the Donald Trump administration, lies vacant for a really long time, right. thereby kind of administratively neutering it and giving Steve Bannon what he wants. Mm-hmm tearing down the American state one empty office at a time. Mm -hmm. And if you don't leave it vacant, you're now bringing big business money and lobbying efforts by way of the United States Senate to the role of the head of the U.S. Copyright Office. The U.S. Copyright Office is one of those offices that some people view as a much more technocratic organization and the role of the head of it as a much more technocratic role rather than a politicized role. And I'm, I'm one of those people. I think that 
I think that the politicization of that office, it's already a mess. The, the copyright system in the United States is already a mess. And to further politicize the organization of the U.S. Copyright Office is going to be bad news bears. Okay, so this is wild. Right now, the Register of Copyright, which is the head of the Copyright Office, is not a political uh, position. And there have been 12 of them since 1897. When the Copyright Office was founded. Yeah, that's, that's an average of one every 10 years. Yeah. So by moving it to a presidential appointment, then it'll be assumed that when a president is voted out or... You know, there's a transfer of, party, of power from one party to the other, then the Register of Copyright will submit their resignation just like every other political appointment. Right. There was some drama. There was some drama recently wherein the former librarian of Congress was a Reagan appointee and he was like this um, bow tie wearing kind of book fetishist that <laughs> that refused to kind of technologically upgrade the uh-huh. Library of Congress or the uh, Copyright Office. And there was some political drama in the last few years of the Obama administration. He resigned unexpectedly. And the reaction of all of the bureaucrats at the copyright office was like, you know, ding dong, the, the witch is dead and everybody's very excited. And, um, president Obama replaced the librarian of Congress and that librarian of Congress fired the Mm. prior head of the U S copyright office and put in, um, a much more tech, you know, techno friendly, uh, head the new head the new librarian of the Congress is an actual librarian that's got a formal academic oh, wow. background in library science which we've talked about before right. as being a very complicated data intensive affair. Okay, rest assured, we're not just going to talk about the palace intrigue of the Library of Congress. Although that would make a great Star Wars prequel. <laughs> so we're going to segue into a broader conversation about copyrights in the United States. Yeah. I really want to get into this because this is something that hits close to home, right? So yes. first of all, we're both copyright holders. Mm-hmm. We're both currently producing content that is subject to copyright. Mm-hmm. Um, you work in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, I do own copyrights on things that I wrote a long time ago but and like shorts I've produced. But the things that I make for money... <laughs> I don't own the copyright on. They're owned by the companies that hire me. Okay. Yeah, I'm a TV writer, so what I'm talking about specifically are TV, you know, scripts for television episodes. If I owned the copyright, then there is nothing governing how little they can pay me for it. Right. It basically becomes like if I painted a, a painting, they could the companies could pay me one dollar, and I that would be fine. But because it's a work for hire in which I'm transferring the copyright, I never, I'm not transferring it. They own it from beginning to end. Then that can be kind of set and negotiated in terms of what the minimum is. So that's my understanding as to why writers and directors do not own the copyrights on the material that they create. Okay. So I just wanted to clarify that point. But also it's, well, I may be getting a little ahead of the horse here, but um, there's also a long-term uh, control and legality incentive for them to own your works as a corporation right. rather than having you own them as an individual. Right. I don't know the exact numbers, but an individual holds a copyright for a certain number of years after his or her death. It's currently the life of the author plus 70 years. And what is it when a corporation owns the... When a corporation holds the copyright... 
I have this written down, sorry. Um, so for works made for hire and anonymous and pseudonymous works, the duration of a copyright is 95 years from the first publication or 120 years from its creation, whichever one is shorter. Unless the author's identity is later revealed in copyright office records in which it reverts to the life of the author plus 70 years. Whoa. So this is a very um, – I'm very passionate about this, so I'm, I'm trying. You hear me stuttering. I'm trying to like, keep my shit under control. Mm-hmm. If you were to score every issue in our lives by a on a graph where on the x-axis is how aware the public is of it, or how often mm-hmm. people think about it, and then on the y-axis you have how actually important it is to the daily lives of people, you'd have stuff like healthcare being all the way in the upper right, right. very. High public awareness, very high impact on daily life of people. Mm-hmm. You'd have issues like Syria, right? Unfortunately, I'm going to be a little cynical but pragmatic here. Um, something that's probably high on the awareness scale, but probably low on the daily life impact of the average American. Absolutely. Um, so that would be in the bottom left. I would place intellectual property issues all the way at the top of impact on our daily lives, mm-hmm. but all the way on the bottom in terms of how often in just daily circles um, people discuss it, people know the Mm -hmm. ins and outs and nuances of it. So that's why I want to talk about it today. So you talked about being a TV writer just so both in a full disclosure aspect to our listeners and also just so that we have some context. I, while I've written a lot of things in my life, I have one work, I have a children's book called Roger Next President at Six, which is actually formally registered in the Library of Congress and has a, an official copyright. However, for those listeners that don't know, um, one of the positive changes that was introduced in the Copyright Act of 1976, which was the last, and that's not quite true, is the last big time copyright law was touched, although there's the Sonny Bono Copyright Act of 1998, 98. which we'll talk about mm-hmm. a little bit later. One of the positive changes, in my opinion, of the 1976 law was that it changed copyright, it basically changed the registration of copyright from being an explicit opt-in, like you you wrote a poem and you mailed it into the Library mm-hmm. of Congress and someone stamped it and sent you a, a, mm-hmm. a receipt, to uh, it's basically an intrinsic copyright right. system, whereby you as the author, the moment you write something, the moment you publish something on the internet, the moment um, you record an audio work or s- capture a few frames of video, that's automatically your copyright or, in some cases, the copyright of your employer. Mm-hmm. One thing that's been on my mind a lot is that you have maybe the deceptive analog between real property and intellectual property. So the classic conservative case strongly in favor of intellectual property law, specifically copyright is that there are no term limits of term on the ownership of real property. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Eddie, your father could own a, a an acre of land somewhere, mm-hmm. and there is no law so long as y- your father and his heirs pay the property taxes on that property – there is no time limit. You could, you and your family and your descendants could live off that piece of land and hand it off from one generation to the other in perpetuity for 500 years mm-hmm. if you wanted to. And the state theoretically cannot take that away from you. No one can compel you to sell that property. And if you were to seek rent on that property, you would be able to live off of the profits of that rent-seeking activity on mm-hmm. that land ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. However, 
So the conservative case for strong copyright law is why if Eddie's father or Eddie himself were to write a hit novel or TV show or a song, why shouldn't he be able to pass on that intellectual property to his heirs ad infinitum? And why shouldn't they be able to control what happens with that intellectual property? Or if you take the analogy of licensing a creative work versus rent seeking on a piece of mm-hmm. property. Why shouldn't they be able to live off of the receipts of the licensing of that intellectual property ad infinitum in that model a Roosevelt that moved to Manhattan in 1680 mm-hmm. can own a city block of Manhattan and no one can take that away from that family as so long as they pay their property taxes for 400 years now. Mm-hmm. A book written by Teddy Roosevelt theoretically would still be able to be controlled and licensed by his heirs. His great, great, great grandchildren now would be able to control that work, uh, have it destroyed if someone infringes on that copyright, and profit off of the royalties of the sale of that book okay. forever. But you don't, you don't believe that? Point. I don't at all. No. Okay, good. Because I was like worried that I was going to have to argue in favor of the public domain. Absolutely not. I I think it is horrible. Okay. I think the system we have right now is bonkers, but I want to hear from you. Well, I got worried because I've never had to argue in favor of the public domain, but I guess it's important to just put the argument out there that, it, that ideas should be shared, that creative works should be shared. I think that there are certainly the rights of the creator to not that creator, not with capital C. C. Yeah. Um, I am the <laughs> content creator with what we call them now to profit from their work, you know, for a limited amount of time and for their air to profit for a little bit amount of time for a limited amount of time after their, the content creator's death. I, I completely agree. I just wanted to state the best. No, that's interesting. The, yeah. the most compelling counter argument I've come across mm-hmm. just for the sake of intellectual honesty in our conversation mm-hmm. and to bring it up for food for thought for mm-hmm. people. But I'm in complete agreement. I think it's important, too, to understand the mechanical differences between physical property and intellectual property. And it comes up more and more now that we live in a digital age, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And now you've got um, not only virtually zero friction of copying and experiencing copies of various media, but you also have critical technologies that are built on top of the act of copying, that we wouldn't be able to live with in our modern world today. And that, and yet you do have people, you do have lawyers and you do have corporations out there that are arguing that this is bad and that there should be more controls and should be more restrictions. Um, and a, a non-obvious example that I want to bring up is um, Google. Google's entire technology is built on the idea that the internet is made up of a bunch of pages Uh and I'm going to make a crawler or what's called a spider that's going to go to all those pages. It's going to copy all the content to our servers. And then we're going to chunk and analyze and process that information in various ways that allow us to understand what is out there, rank it appropriately. And then when Eddie searches for um, how to replace Paul Ryan in the United States Congress, mm-hmm. we're able to match him with a high-quality result somewhere on the internet. Mm-hmm. The act itself of building PageRank or building a search engine involves the duplication of written material, recorded material, etc. that's on the internet. And Google has been sued to kingdom come for the last 17 years. Really? Oh, absolutely. Um, has I, been- didn't know, I didn't know that that was how Google worked. 
in a super reductive way. That is how Google works. And Google has been sued on exactly those grounds Mm -hmm. many, many times. It's another weird, non-intuitive area where it's really strong intellectual property protections are a um, are detrimental to technological progress in a lot of ways, right? So imagine, do the guys that are building Google. This is kind of like a boohoo first world problem, right? But now you have to go raise millions of more dollars from venture capital or raise more money at, a, in a, at an initial public offering just to pay the multi-million dollar legal battles with right. universal pictures. Or- That's not where I thought you were going. I mean, where I thought you were going is that if the courts determine that what Google is doing is in fact an infringement, then they would have to raise millions of or hundreds of millions of dollars to license every website yeah. on the internet. But that would be a disaster if it were ever found, like if the copyright infringement was ever found against Google, but even just the threat of it right, necessitates right. millions of dollars of legal fees in defending yourself. And court and Google spent millions upon probably hundreds of millions of dollars. I would not bat an eyelash. I don't have a specific number in front right. of me, but probably hundreds of millions of dollars over the last 15 years fighting these exact fights. So yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan at all. I also not a fan of what? Of intellectual of intellectual property. So you so you're taking laws. you're taking the exact opposite approach that you think that there should be no copyright at all? I don't know about no copyright at all. But I think a dramatic loosening compared to what we have today. And some of that is I'm outing myself a little bit here. Some of that is my bias toward technological progress and development. Mm-hmm. Some of it's cultural though. Think about I want to put it into Eddie, Eddie Q terms. Sure. Right? Think about how much borrowing, inspiration, et cetera, George Lucas did uh-huh. of a lot of other films. Uh-huh. But let's point to uh, what are the samurai movies from the 1950s? The Kurosawa movies. Kurosawa movies. 25 years mm-hmm. had transpired. Now, he didn't like take frames of any of Akira Kurosawa's movies and put them into Star Wars, mm-hmm. right? But a case could be made that a lot of the storylines, some character yeah, names, some motifs, even some shot. Well, you, you are technically right, but you start to get into some very, very strange places. Let me let me get let me take this for example. There is a planet in Star in the Star Wars universe. Uh huh. Wait, I want to make sure this is true before I say this. <laughs> There's a planet in the Star Wars universe. Do you feel your Star Wars knowledge atrophying? I feel that about myself recently. No. I'm up on my I'm up You're on You're googling a planet that you all No, know I know it's in Star Wars. I don't <laughs> know if it's Okay. So Isaac Asimov wrote a book called Foundation in the mm-hmm. 1950s, I think. So it's it's one of the most epic. Have you read it? Mm-mm. It's one of the most epic science fiction books in the whole wide world. Okay. In this book, there is a galactic empire mm-hmm. that's ruled by an emperor. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, there is a planet that is the capital of the empire. That is a planet where every square inch of the planet is covered by city. Mm-hmm. I would go so far as that's all very kind of inspired by right. There are proper names that are identical, right? So to for start example, because what you just described for some of our listeners is the capital of the. Republic in 
Star Wars is this, all those things that you just described. So, exactly. Now, you could say, oh, change a couple names, change, change a couple characters. There is a planet called Corellia, which in Star Wars is Han Solo's home, home planet. planet. And it's a major planet in the books, uh, in the Foundation novels. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Now... Oh, here's a good one. So the whole nation, the whole notion of a galactic empire with a city planet as its physical center in the, in the foundation, the planet is called Trantor. And early on in the drafts of the Star Wars scripts, it was called Jantor. <laughs> There's a, an ancient galaxy spanning political institution falling in the story. There are weapons that are referred to specifically as blasters uh-huh. in both stories, Star Wars and Foundation. Corel is a planetary system in Foundation, and Corellia is Han Solo's home planet. As of now, this could be retconned in the movie that's coming out sure. next year. Okay, so I'm, I see what, what you're saying. You're saying that if we take a literal view of copyright, then George Lucas infringed on Asimov's copyright. Theoretically, and not just Asimov, but other, right? He remixed sure. a ton of stuff. Yeah. And he borrowed, every, everybody borrows a yes. lot from a lot of other influences. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying George Lucas did anything wrong, quite frankly. What I'm saying is, how could you fault George Lucas from taking everything that he loves, sure. right? And ingesting it as part of his culture mm-hmm. and wanting to express himself in the context and the conversation and the language that he came up in. So I, I take kind of a, so, my original point was that I have on one point on the one hand, like a technological um, wing of myself in favor of intellectual property law. I mean, against intellectual property law in terms of uh, scientific progress and technological development. But another one is a cultural one, right? Where we all grew up with stories, some of which were copyrighted and some of which weren't. And we grow up and we want to tell our own stories those stories, those characters, those names, those themes, those scenes have become part of our canon and part of our cultural conversation mm-hmm. and shouldn't be locked down in perpetuity, in my opinion. We're shutting off a lot of creative development. By these 90 to 120 year copyrights. Yeah. Okay. See, the the devil's in the details, because I agree with you, but what I'm worried about is that you're getting at, like, a six-month copyright. And so let, me for, historical, let me, for historical context, talk about the Copyright Act of 1790, which was the first. So copyright, the, the right of con- or Congress has the power to issue copyrights. That's enshrined in the Constitution. So the Copyright Act of 1790 was the first law dictating that. And it gave artists, writers, whatever, a 14-year copyright, and if the writer or artist was still alive after 14 years, they could renew it for another 14 years. For a total of 28, that's it. I think that's about right. I think they had it right the first time. (laughs) And they actually got that from uh, Great Britain. It's an older law from like the early 1700s. Statute of Anne? And yeah, 14 with an option for another 14. So maybe that's a little short. I think the shorter the better, though. Mm-hmm. I want you to. Did you look into? Did you look into the German the German speaking states in the nineteenth century? Yeah, that they had none. Yeah, that and, it was the Wild West, so to speak. And it was one of the most 
It was one of the eras of the greatest cultural and technological progress of any nation, state, or empire in the history of the world. Now, whether or not loose intellectual property laws are causal for that economic development or not Mm -hmm. is to be argued. Mm -hmm. I think I would also point to modern-day China, which its meteoric rise in the world economy has very famously coincided with very loose and lax intellectual property laws. And to the extent that there are major international business treaties that are signed specifically with the intention of getting China to obey by international copyright and intellectual property laws, or in the instance of TPP, some of that was to counterbalance China's loose intellectual property culture. I'm, I'm really won over to the idea that looser IP restrictions lead to greater innovations and greater cultural diversity and experimentation. And that is a net positive for business and a net positive for culture and a net positive for any nation state. And therefore the terms should be as loose as possible. Mm -hmm. Here's the flip side of it because it is so much easier now to sustain creative material, right? Whereas, you know, 500 years ago, or pre the printing press, you had to literally copy a book by hand in order to perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. And then after the printing press, you could you could copy it. And so the first copyrights were actually called patents because you were patenting that. Right. For reference, I read once that to handwrite the Holy Bible, it took one guy recently did it like as a religious experiment, 13 years to do it. And Johann Gutenberg's first movable type printing press of the Holy Bible was about four days per copy of a book. Wow. Humongous reduction. Yeah, geez Louise. But now, like you mentioned earlier, you can copy and save a book in seconds. Because back then there was a winnowing, right? You couldn't keep around. There was a physical limitation to how many books one printing shop could be printing at a time. Over time, books were kind of lost or they went out of print. Now there really is no, there's no out of digital print, right? Right. Once it's been digitized, it's around forever. So in order to protect the content creators, don't you... Shouldn't we give them that copyright for a longer period of time because their stuff's not going anywhere? And I, I want to point out the movie Batman with Michael Keaton as Batman and Jack Nicholson as the Joker came out 28 years ago. That's not that long. I mean, I remember going to see that movie, mm-hmm. that, but according to this 14 and 14 formula, it would be in the public domain now. Here's my, here's my framework. Walt Disney grew up hearing stories about Cinderella mm-hmm. and Sleeping Pinocchio. Beauty and Pinocchio as a kid. And he was able to grow, grow up and tell stories about Pinocchio and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. You and I grew up hearing stories about Batman and Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. and we should be able to tell stories about Batman and Luke Skywalker. Hmm. I think it's a generation. I would support tentatively, uh, if I were to propose something to Congress, a reversion to, let's say, let's keep it generational. The Census Bureau defines a 
demographic generation is roughly 20 to 25 years. Uh-huh. So I would say let's go on the, let's be generous and go on the higher end of that. I would say one automatic 25 year term optionally renewable for another 25 year term if it's in use and if the author is still alive. Uh-huh. And corporations maximum are not 50, maximum 50 years and probably you'd have to give corporations on automatic 50. But my, my point is, and for reference, I want to be specific. I don't want to just live in the land of generalities. Carlo, Carlo Collodi, uh, was an Italian writer. He wrote the adventures of Pinocchio Uh and they were published in 1883. He died in 1890. If he lived in under current us copyright law, Pinocchio would have been under copyright protection until 1960. Wow. Walt Disney made Pinocchio in 1940. It was the first Academy Award. I mean, it was the first animated movie to win an Academy Award. If 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 our current copyright laws had been in place, we would have never had "When You Wish Upon a Star" as a song to sing. Uh-huh. We would never had Jiminy Cricket. Like these are the things we would have stifled. So what I'm saying is, if there's like a little bit of cynicism, or a little bit of climbing up the ladder and then kicking the right. the rungs out behind you when you've made it. On the part specifically, I'll pick on Disney, right? Where well, you Disney's got to be the biggest lobbyist, absolutely, for extending copyright. Absolutely, I mean, very famously, the Sonny Bono copyright extension of 1998 extended copyright by 20 extra years because Steamboat Willie was about to become public domain, right? And that's up again. Like we're in the window. That's why this is pertinent. So just for so everyone knows, um, the 1976 law did something weird. Hold on, but I need to well, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Or I, should I, I stay on about, I want to talk about Steamboat Willie. Okay. Because the the reason they're spearheading it is Steamboat Willie is the first cartoon to feature Mickey Mouse. When you go to Disneyland, think about how much stuff has Mickey Mouse on it. Yeah. Well, to be clear though about how this works, and I I'm ninety eight percent certain this is true. We'll have to check with a lawyer. Steamboat Willie itself will be public domain, which means Eddie, you can rip a copy of Steamboat Willie and put it on a movie screen in a park and charge admission for Mm -hmm. it, right? And Disney can't come after you. Furthermore, Mickey Mouse, the character, becomes public domain. Mm -hmm. However, um, the 1962 Prince and the Popper version of Mickey, Mickey Mouse version of Prince and the Popper is not under public domain until that copyright goes in. Right. right? So it's I not mean, like Cinderella automatically becomes public domain or right now there are people outside of Disneyland selling Mickey Mouse sweatshirts and that's illegal because they don't have the license. They're bootleg sweatshirts yes. and they can be arrested and prosecuted. I don't know how seriously Anaheim police is taking this problem, but sure. it can be once Steamboat Willie goes into public domain, not only can those people not be prosecuted, I would imagine you're going to see a lot more yeah. leg stores out in Anaheim. I want to go back to also to Pinocchio. Like um, I was reading, I'm going to quote from um, a, a write-up that I was reading about it. Um, the quote is, many film historians consider Pinocchio to be the film that most closely per- approaches technical perfection of all Disney animated features. Uh, Leonard Maltin said, with Pinocchio, Disney reached not only the height of his powers, but the apex of what many critics consider to be the realm of the animated cartoon. I mean, this is a major cultural work that if Walt Disney lived under the same copyright regime that we do today would Mm -hmm. never have existed. I think latter day Walt Disney's the 24 year old Walt Disney that's walking around probably Burbank, California right now Mm -hmm. should be able to remix and reinvent these characters and these beloved characters and stories for a new generation. I think it's super important. Um, All right. 
You've convinced me. I, you really uh, have. I think that that's a compelling argument that I had never thought about, that, that Walt Disney would not have been able to make Pinocchio if he had to deal with the same laws that we do. Another weird thing, too, I think I referenced it a minute ago and I stopped in my tracks, was that the 1976 law did a weird thing. So before that, it was all of these um, contiguous property. Uh, how, do, how am I going to phrase this? So every time before that, copy, every time before that copyright was extended to works that were already, even at the tail end of their protection, they were still protected and just new protections got added on mm-hmm. top of it. The 1976 law kind of ret- it protected works that had already gone, slipped into the public domain. Exactly. So it went back to 1923. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this and why it's so timely and why I wanted to talk about it now, because it's going to, because we're always living one step in the future here on mm-hmm. the podcast is that those works in 1923 start to reenter the public domain again in 2018 mm-hmm. next year. Wow. Furthermore, steamboat Willie enters the public domain in 2024. So 2024 is the big year. Mm-hmm. And I think in the next, I, may, maybe this Goodlatte bill that just passed the House last week is the entertainment industry lobby's first volley in the upcoming copyright wars that we're about to live through. Mm. But this hasn't happened since 1998 when we were just kids. And that was just an extension. This hasn't really been litigated and debated since 1976. So this is probably going to be a really big deal in the next few years, starting potentially this congressional, like potentially this Congress that's currently in session will be be dealing with some of these issues because 2018 is when this, so something, the great Gatsby will be entering the public domain. Wow. Um, A couple really, Finnegan's Wake will be entering the public domain. There are a lot of uh, big deals that are going to be entered in the public domain that arguably should have entered the public domain sooner. Absolutely. But are now going to finally be reentering the public domain. There's a website. I can't remember the name of it. I'll dig it up for you later. That every year on January 1st publishes a parallel universe. If copyright hadn't been extended, these are all the things that would now be public domain. Mm -hmm. It's like a wish list, Mm -hmm. which is astounding. Here's another thing, too, um, I want to bring up. Now we're getting a little futuristic, but what happens when people live longer? You have a, oh, right. When you tie it to the life of a person, you're now beholden to the actuarial tables of mm-hmm. creators. I hadn't thought about that. So in a world where the Walt Disney of today, who's 24, lives to be 130 years old, you're now still, arti- not artificially, you're still lengthening. I don't think the life of an author is even a really that good of a, of a metric. Hmm. Um, furthermore, I've been, this is not something I'm ready to commit to, not that we have billions of listeners or anything, but like uh, something I've tentatively started talking to a lawyer about is letting Roger Nix free. Uh huh. Like after a certain period of time, probably I'd give it another five or 10 years to see if I can, you know, license it for something super lucrative. Mm -hmm. But if not, it's like a character that I really like and I created and I love it, but like, I don't need to make you know, a couple hundred bucks a quarter from the sales of the book for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. That's not going to move the needle for me. And even if what I'm saying is I'd like to, I'd like to introduce um, some of my copyrighted works into the public domain early, which mm-hmm. an author can do at any mm-hmm. time um, for the public good. It's not a very common occurrence, but I think it's a cool, it's a groovy thing that I want to do. Tell me about Motown. So Motown's a very specific corner of the cultural American cultural history that relates to copyright law in a bad way. Motown came out in a perfect storm of events where you basically had some questions about copyright terms, broadcast radio as 
a relatively, not a new format, but the kind of mainstream top 20 um, mm-hmm. radio world. Um, and then also like a, a community, a black Midwestern black community that was historically underserved, mm-hmm. particularly by in terms of legal services, mm-hmm. where you have this geographically centered musical culture where there are thousands of hours of recordings where people don't know who is on the recording. Mm. Um, they don't know who to attribute the copyright to. Um, there are copyright disputes, artists that weren't famous that did recordings and were exploited in some way and then later became famous and have sued retroactively. There's a guy, there's a guy who wrote a book, um, his name's something Patry or Atry or something like that. He wrote a book, how to fix copyright. And something that's shocking to me when I read it was that, uh, 95% of Motown recordings are no longer available. Mm -hmm. 95% of a major movement in American musical culture are not available um, to listen to or purchase. Um, nevertheless, you can't cover or imitate or even sample them without paying a licensing fee. So despite the fact that the work is not competing in the marketplace with the original work, because it's not for sale anymore, there's this weird quirk where um, the U.S. law doesn't protect recorded music made before 1972, but some state laws apply. Mm. So there's this like, there's a state law versus federal law problem. There's a um, time-stamped 1972 recorded music problem. There's a big like recording industry, big business versus little guy Motown artist problem. And the result of it all is not that artists are being paid fairly. The result isn't even that corporations are making a ton of money. Right. The result is that a bunch of current recording artists, um, current record labels, um, current technological platforms, uh, maybe even filmmakers that are taking an entire corner of very important uh, American musical history and saying, ah, we're just not going to touch it. Mm -hmm. Right. We're going to ignore it. It's just, it's there. And um, like, it's too much trouble Mm -hmm. to mess with. What that ends up doing is benefiting nobody. And it basically ensures that Motown is, probably underappreciated and underutilized in our culture compared to what it would be um, if everything were sorted out. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a confused thing. So it, I feel like it does confuse your point. Why? Because my point is that if there were no copyrights, filmmakers, current recording artists could sample, could recover. Oh, but it also sounds like you're asking that these people should be compensated. I'm saying that if the whole point of having copyright is to ensure that creators are compensated in whatever framework Mm -hmm. for six months or for 600 years in this instance, that's not happening. Right. And on top of that, like it's just a cluster is what I'm saying. So like in Motown, this guy goes on to write in quote in Motown, at least you know who to call in the case of many books and photographs, the rights holders are unknown. In other cases, it's expensive to track down the heirs or the legatees or the firms possibly no longer in existence to whom the copyright belongs. And so for fear of being sued and having their work pulped or otherwise erased from the universe, people avoid the risk. Patry says that the BBC has a million hours of broadcasts in its archives that cannot be used because no one knows who holds the rights. Whoa. Like that's, that's cultural treasure. Yeah. 
That's a quote from a New Yorker article that's fantastic on copyright. I'll put it in the show notes. So his name is Patrick. Yeah, I don't know his first name. Let's just call him Gene Patrick because it rhymes kind of with Gene Autry. <laughs> because you, I think, thought that it was funny that in a conversation about copyright and attribution, you didn't know the guy's name. Who yeah, that. <laughs> I know. I know. The article is um, Copy Wrong Crooners in a Rights Spat by Louis Menand from the New Yorker's October 20th, 2014 issue. I guess we can get to patents another day. Patents are a little bit less of a problem, but you get to code and all that stuff. And right. It's very hairy, but we don't have time for that today, I don't think. Um, I want to give the last word to you because I feel like I've really steamrolled this whole episode. No, it's been, I think it's been really interesting. Um, when you told me that you wanted to talk about the debate about copyrights, I was worried that we were going to be talking about, you know, do we need copyrights at all? And I, I believe that we do. I think that they are important. But I, I've come to agree with you that they're far, far too long. I mean, I've always thought they were too long, but but now I see the merits of shorter copyright windows. And while I'm not willing to go as far as 19th century Germany, which had no copyright laws at all, I think that it should be more within reason. And and tying it to a generation seems like within reason. Yeah. Something, um, if we could like conscript, or maybe I'll do it as a side project, I'd like to see in terms of data... I'd love to see a, an infographic or something or a data analysis of countries around the world over time and their copyright terms and their uh, plotted against their economic performance. And if my hypothesis were correct, it would be that as copyright terms increase, economic performance decreases. I don't think that it's going to be such a clear relationship. I, that would just be an interesting thing to look at. And I could be wrong. Maybe the data comes back and there's no correlation. Maybe it's opposite. Maybe it's I think that if it were that clear of a correlation, then they would have addressed it already. Do you? Yeah. I think that it, that no, seems like such a silver bullet. I disagree, Eddie. That's how you and I think because we're pragmatists and we're <laughs> good people. People like you and me, I'll speak for myself, okay, but I think you're similar. You'll say, let's try something. Let's do an experiment. Let's give it a set period of time. Let's have some professionals look at it. Let's gather some data. And even if I was an advocate of an idea at first and the data all comes back and it's wrong, then let's change what we're doing Mm -hmm. until we find something that works. That's like a very experimental cause and effect way to like deal with life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that would be interesting to look at some of this data from countries around the world and their copyright terms and their economic performance. However, what you're saying is that if it were that clear, people would do it. That's not how po- I'm, this is going to sound cynical, but like, that's not how politics works. I'm finding out. I agree. That's not how politics works. I think that is how economics works. But economics is a slave to politics. Mm, politics determines no. what happens in economics. I think the other way, well, maybe this is a cynical thing. I think it's the other way around. I think politics is a slave to economics. I oh. think that economics are driving the boat. Oh, I disagree. I think the economists maybe should be driving the boat, but they're not. They're like yelling at the captain to not drive <laughs> them and not steer them into a reef. I mean, like for crying out loud, right? The, the, in 2001, President George W. Bush enacted a series of tax cuts, mm-hmm. but he used the bird rule. Do you know, are you familiar with the Bird Rule? No. The Bird Rule is a procedural Senate rule that says that you can, um, that you need a 60 vote filibuster proof majority to alter 
the tax code. I might be getting a couple of these things wrong. So uh, unless it does not alter the deficit Mm. projections Mm -hmm. more than a decade in the future. So it has to be revenue neutral. Right. And the way they got around that was they passed it with fewer than 60 votes, but they said it expired after 10 years. So you remember when the Bush right. tax cuts expired in 2001 and President Obama was... 2011, yeah. 2011. What did I say? 2001. 2001, yeah. Yeah, 2012 was actually when they expired, but go on. Right. On January 1st, 2012, they were gone. That's an example of, at the time, in 2001, conservatives were saying... Trickle-down economics works. We're going to do a big tax cut. It's going to be paid for with economic growth. It's going to be a fucking bonanza. And we're, all, we're going to do this procedural rule because we don't have the votes for it now. And it'll be 10 years. But 10 years from now, the evidence will be so clear that they'll make it permanent then. Mm-hmm. Where the fuck did that land them? Yeah. I think the 2000s is exhibit A amongst many exhibits in this informal court of law that show that the Republican trickle-down economics do not – like, they just don't work. I agree with if you. If they worked, people would be on board with them. I agree with you. I'm saying that politicians love short-term gain because it helps them get reelected. But and, – and if what you're saying is true, that shorter copyright windows lead to greater economic output – that is a short-term gain, and I feel like they would have enacted that already. We'll see. I, I Now I'm so curious. I am going to make this graph if it doesn't already Let's do exist. it in Google Sheets. Great. And then let's make the data available to all of our listeners. Cool. Because that would, you know, be interesting. This is very funny and probably not going to be true, but like if nobody ever thought to look at it, and like yeah. this little <laughs> robot F. Kennedy Google Sheets like changed the course of economic history. Yeah. Great. I think we should do it. Cool. Um, awesome. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. Also, ratings really help out a lot. So if you don't mind going in and clicking those stars on iTunes, that would be great. Follow us on Twitter, at RobotFKennedy. And if you have a friend who might be interested in what we're talking about today or in any other episode, please send them our way. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you. This has been fun. (laughs) See you soon. Hope to see you next week. Hope to hear from you next week. Hope to... Hope to be in your earballs next week.